We made this. Hello and welcome to Frame to Frame, part of the We Made This podcast network. We are the podcast that take two seemingly unconnected films and slam them together like a human body and another organism. I'm Andy Williams. And I'm Sean Wilson. And this week we're talking to you about horror movies that superseded their originals. So this week we're talking to you about 1982 John Carpenter's The Thing and the 1986 film David Cronenberg's The Fly. So these are two remakes of sort of sci-fi horror films that were out in the 1950s. But for our money, they supersede the originals. But Sean, what were your relationships to these, I guess, four films? Well, to be completely honest, I'm largely familiar with the remakes because I think most people of our generation probably are familiar with the remakes. You know, they came out in the 1980s, close to when we were born. I, I saw The Thing for the first time at university. John Carpenter's The Thing, that is, and was absolutely blown away by it. I think I caught The Fly maybe a year or two before that when it was on TV. And again, just, you know, a mixture of you know, awestruck wonder and absolute repulsion. Yeah, which is the kind of thing that David Cronenberg trucks in quite regularly. The originals, I have to be completely honest, I'm not as familiar with because as per the theme of this episode, they have been completely superseded and rightly so. I would always point to these two movies. When, when people say, oh, all remakes are terrible, rubbish. You know, these two remakes are two of the greatest films of all time. So I, I had not actually seen The Fly uh, ahead of this episode. I only watched What, the it. Cronenberg one? Yeah, ah. either of them, actually. But, uh, mm. I mean, no real reason. It's come up a lot lately in the last few episodes, the um, cultural osmosis, that I just kind of, like, I've seen the episode of The Simpsons where there's a treehouse of horror and Bart invents yeah. a teleportation machine, and then he goes in the same time. Like I've, I've seen it. But when you, when you say cultural osmosis, do you mean me badgering you and me saying the same thing over and over again until you get the idea that you need to watch it? Um, no, because I've learned to zone you out. Um, okay, where to kick me on down? <laughs> but yeah, so I watched both the the fly for this, uh, both versions of the fly, the the 1986 and the 1958 version. So we'll be looking at that in a little bit more depth a little bit later on. However, it's a film that I have heard you call John Carpenter's masterpiece. So I would like you to tell us a little bit more about the 1982 version of The Thing. Uh, Yeah, well, in order to do that, one has to put it in context with the 1951 movie, The Thing from Another World, and and throwing even further back before that to the 1938 uh, short novella, Who Goes There?, which was written by John W. Campbell Jr., which influenced both of these movies. So in both forms the thing from another world from 1951 and the thing from 1982 the john carpenter version there are shared tenets between the two movies although the way in which they the the two films tackle their central extraterrestrial threat is wildly different and relative to the various areas in which each movie was made so the, the 1951 movie arose in the era of mccarthyism of communist suspicion, roughly in the same era as as uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. This was just a few years before that. Co-written and co-produced by Howard Hawks, one of the founding fathers of the Hollywood studio system, one of the great actors, directors, had a very, very proficient sense of style. Am I then able to guess that everyone was talking at like 25 miles? (laughs) There is actually overlapping dialogue in it, but I'd I'd love to see Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn just wander into the middle 
middle of this and just have a fast-paced conversation. But why is there a humanoid alien in our midst? And just oh, that would just be amazing. And then a cheetah comes in and it, and interrupts. He was like the forties version of Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> he, he was that. That's probably actually a good way of looking at it. Yeah, but crucially, Howard Hawks did not direct this the thing. I forgot about it as well. It's actually directed by Christian Nyby. Although there are many, many sort of conflicting reports as to who actually directed it, you know, did Howard Hawks, was Christian Nyby basically effectively the stand-in director, the ghost director, while Howard Hawks was controlling the strings behind the scenes? And I, I did find an interview with Christian Nyby where he said, well, Howard Hawks was my mentor. Of course, I was going to direct it in the manner of a Howard Hawks movie. And indeed, you can see elements in the original movie of that Hawksian style, like we said, with people with overlapping dialogue, you know, sense of verisimilitude to some extent in the performances to throw it over to john carpenter i did see an interview with john carpenter where he had heard that christian nyby had basically reconstructed uh howard hawks's movie red river and as a thank you howard hawks basically let nyby direct the thing from another world that's what john carpenter had heard i mean there are various conflicting stories about this but also like way back then surely the there was a lot more hands-on in terms of producer. The producer was more of a king in, in Hollywood at that point in time mm. than the director. Directors were ultimately directors for hire at that point. Yeah, it, it was probably contested whether there was such a thing as an auteur director at that point. I mean, certainly I think looking back at it now, one could probably contest that Howard Hawks probably was that. I mean, in in terms of the, the way he carved out that style i mean it's interesting i mean the 1951 movie has got some very some legendary people attached to it i mean co-writer um uh, ben hecht uh you know one of one of the most famous and prestigious writers from the golden age of hollywood um cinematographer russell harlan who would go on to do to kill a mockingbird 11 years after this composer dimitri chomkin i forgot dimitri chomkin was involved in the 1951 um movie but Crucially, in the original film, the thing is played by actor James Arnes as a humanoid alien, kind of like so it, it, I was going to say Herman Munster. He actually looks like Crichton from Red Dwarf, but just slightly <laughs> taller. And he kind of he clumps around all over the place. And it, it, it is a bit cheesy and it is a bit dated, but the fundamental principles between the 1951 and the 1982 movies are essentially the same. You know, icebound setting. You know, the, the, this the the original, the 1951 is set in Anchorage and Alaska. The Carpenter version is set in Antarctica. So the basic principles of the two movies are exactly the same. They're a um, large group of individuals, scientists, um, whoever, uh, basically dis- discover that an alien creature has crash landed in, in the pack ice on Earth many, many years ago. It thaws, it comes to life, it terrorises it, ter- it terrorizes, um, the, the, the research station. And as I said, in, in the original one, it's much more of a kind of clumping, thumping, man walking around with very stiff body language like breaking through doors and everything else it's not to say that the original doesn't have merits because i think it does actually have i mean in its location photography it's actually pretty impressive for a 1951 i mean obviously a lot of it is done in studios but there was obviously a lot of it done on location as well and in fact the production of the two films is interesting because similarly this 1951 movie used refrigerated sets. John Carpenter would use refrigerated sets as well for, for his movie to really give you the sense that the actors are incredibly under incredible duress and incredible cold. Obviously, when you bring it forward to the 1982 movie, you get 
John Carpenter, who absolutely revered the original. The 1982 movie was Carpenter's first studio movie. He'd worked independently with, you know, scored a huge hit with Halloween. You know, obviously did delivered like cult hits like The Fog and Escape from New York and Assault on Precinct 13. But the thing was his first studio picture. And he was given a bigger budget than usual. Um, in that same interview that I quoted earlier, he said he wasn't particularly keen on remaking it. Um, but he wants to show reverence for the original. But like the Hawks produced version mirrored the concerns of its time, McCarthyism, suspicion, paranoia. Carpenter wants to ensure that, the, that his version of the thing in the early 80s mirrored the concerns of that period. So subsequently what you get, and we'll get onto this more probably when we get onto the fly, is a body horror movie, one of the outliers of the body horror genre. And it takes the original principles of the 1951 uh, movie, but actually it's much closer to the original novella, Who Goes There, which is much more ambiguous. I mean, that didn't have, you know, Herman Munster clumping around around the set and, you know, breaking down walls and everything. And I think that Carpenter's version is masterful for the way it does restore that ambiguity while injecting grace notes of fear that reflected concerns of the time, fear around AIDS, around what would, what happens when your body effectively betrays you. And this is filtered in Carpenter's version through the idea of an alien organism that basically can replicate its host. So you don't, you don't have an actual single embodied figure of the thing. You have a thing, an organism that can replicate anyone and anything in spectacularly gruesome fashion. It's a masterful way of how you take the central tenets of the original and you infuse it with fresh life and you make it arguably much more relevant, much more terrifying, much more politically fascinating. Well, I've got a question for you more than more than yeah. looking at the analysis of the film as yet. So this plot is basically alien, right? Bearing in mind, mm. alien changed the, the face of horror movies in 1979. Do you think that it was almost as a result of that that this got made? Oh, I would have thought so. I mean, Alien itself was was pitched as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in space, so you can always throw these movies back to something beforehand. I mean, I, I, would, I would have thought so. There's literally the word, like, Alien on the poster, like the ultimate alien horror. So yeah, it, it yeah. is, I think it, it's kind of the, the spectre looming over it, especially when you're talking, what, it's three years difference between them. I mean, what I would say is tonally, it's not Alien. I think Alien, at least Alien in its final movements has a sense of like empowerment and hope in, in Ripley Sigourney Weaver gets away and she steps up and she deals with the threat. The thing is much more bleak and much more nihilistic and much more open-ended in terms of what are the consequences for mankind now that this thing can literally take on the form of anyone and anything. There's the brilliant scene where Blair, Wilfred Brimley's character, who is the first one to crack under the paranoia and suspicion, does the basic you know, computer readout and discovers how quickly the thing will replicate its host cells the computer projects an astonishingly brief window of time in which the thing will have taken over the entirety of our planet. Mm. And it's incredibly terrifying. And it's, it's, it's incredibly, it's one of the more understated moments in the movie, but there are those understated moments of pure creeping chill to go with the absolutely explosively eruptive things. I think this is, this is the key thing about the movie. It's really well paced. Yeah. It's also scarily relevant for now. 
You know, if yes, you're looking yeah. at this through the eyes of early 2022, as we are having lived in a global pandemic for almost two years, yeah. the idea of something making its way into humanity and changing the face of the earth isn't quite as far fetched as it was 30 years ago. No, and the idea that what constitutes a human being, you know, how much control do we have over the fleshy biology of our own bodies and what can happen within a person's body to change it without someone knowing it until it's too late. I mean, you know, again, to go back to Rob Bottin, I mean, he was driven to exhaustion by his workload on this movie. And you watch it and you think, yeah, it's not surprising. I mean, Stan Winston had to step in for the scene, the the horrific scene where the sled dogs are assimilated by the thing. That's the first time the human characters become aware that they've got a thing in their midst because it's disguised itself as a dog. I mean, the dog acting is just phenomenal as well. You know there's something wrong with the dog because you see it being chased by the Norwegian pilots from Mm. the other base at the beginning. There's something really not right about it. They take the decision to put it in with the rest of the dogs. Which is a really bad decision. And in that scene, apparently it was Stan Winston who actually contributed most of that, most of the practical effects in that sequence because Rob Bottin was just so exhausted by the workload. But it's just a triumph of tactility of effects. Like when you can see effects that are scrungy and slimy and rubbery and gooey and when there is an actual physical heft and physical texture to them it's just so much more disturbing but it would only work because the atmosphere of the movie beyond those effects is what sells it you know the movie earns the right to be that gruesome because it's actually got a story to tell it's got a story to tell about what happens when man turns against man not what happens when you can't trust your own eyes and what if something has the simulated appearance of a human being but isn't a human being i mean this is why it's a lot scarier than the original one because the original film externalized the monster far more literally because obviously they had to do that because they didn't have the technology otherwise and that means the original one hasn't held up i mean quite as well it's more of a storytelling choice isn't it it's a storytelling choice by by the screenwriter bill lancaster and john carpenter himself in that they chose for this this thing to not be a human like they could have had it in it's not necessarily a technological choice they in the 50s they could have turned around and said you know what if this thing's going to bounce from person to person and we're not going to know who's got it and who hasn't it's just the, the storytelling device that they chose and i would imagine that the the 50s version was probably more influenced by something like frankenstein which had an actual physical being that was wandering around in a monster like you think we were big in the, the sort of the universal monsters at that time so the notion of having a thing wandering around would have made sense whereas when you come to the 80s then clearly they they chose to go in a different direction because it was a different time you know there were different concerns it was it, it they they updated it brilliantly yeah. they got it absolutely right they understood what they need to do with it and they nailed it they got it absolutely spot on I think. yeah and i think it it also helps in that you know, you think of where we were in the, the late 90s, early noughties and, and sort of mid noughties as well. The the idea that you don't know who the enemy is, that any one mm. of you could be the enemy. And that plays right into like republicanism from the mid noughties. Do you know, it's, it's it makes sense to our generation. And I think what the film does particularly well is its set pieces, because there is a real sense of location and there is a real sense because yeah. of the effect of like when you see something blow up you kind of know something blew up whereas in this day and age you don't tend to have it without sounding too uh <laughs> too old manish about the thing the fact that these are practical effects 
really raised this film to being more than I think it, it is. That there was a, a remake in twenty eleven, I believe, and yeah, complete waste. Of well, time. I haven't seen it complete for, for that reason. So yeah. again, I was familiar with this film prior to to that one coming out. And I thought, sort of well, that's not the point of the thing. The point of the thing is the tactility of it all. Yeah, in the two thousand eleven one, they actually designed a series of practical thing creature effects and they went back in post-production and cgi'd over it because they got cold feet i mean just such a spineless exercise really the credibility of the carpenter one it still holds up now i mean aided and abetted by a fabulous cast led by kurt russell as mccready the helicopter pilot who is you know that most archetypal reluctant <laughs> hero but he does ground it in very believable humanity. Hadn't Kurt Russell worked with John Carpenter before? Wasn't Elvis 1979? Yes, and then escaped from New York as well. And then and then they would go on to do Big Trouble in, in Little China and you know various other movies. But it's it's a it's a really fabulously chosen cast. I mentioned Wilford Brimley as well. You've got Keith David as Childs, Charles Hallahan as, as Norris, Donald Moffat as, as Gary, and all of these characters are just sketched well enough for you to actually be invested in what happens. You you understand this very close-knit, hermetically sealed environment of this Antarctic research station to the extent that when the thing arrives and starts to create trouble and starts to simulate them one at a time, you are really scared because you know that these are fundamentally decent men and they're, they're not they're not stupid. They're they're tenacious. They're tenacious, they're quick-witted, they you know, they really put all their resources to the test and it really becomes a nail-biting race against time to stop the thing from freezing itself again because they know that that is basically the end of mankind that someone will arrive to answer the, the distress call at the research station and then the thing will that's it you know the thing will, will get out there and it, it, it the the consequences of this one are you know the global consequences are magnified through this little prism of the of this research station and because when you see the makeup effects you know how terrifying the prospect of this thing getting out into the wider world mm. is you see how gruesome it is how much it mangles people's bodies people's heads people's limbs the dogs you really buy actually, it i think is the that's yeah it's kind of like the first time you see it and when it sheds the skin of the dog and you sort of see it that it's still scary it's still creepy because it's it's you said the word scrungy and disgusting yeah. and it it works like you said on a body horror level as well it's it's a horrible horrible looking thing which is by design the bit for me when norris suffers the heart attack and um dysart as dr copper tries to put the defibrillator paddles on him and then the chest opens up mm. and bites his arms off and then you get a, a chest head coming out from within the chest and it's like oh jeez and then and then sets on fire head separates grows legs like a spider mm -hmm. i mean it's just i mean you look at that and i'm just like awestruck at how they did that because it, it's it's so convincing and it just shows you i mean i don't want to sound old but it shows what <laughs> how brilliant practical effects are i mean you, you look at that compared to the 2011 one i mean <laughs> true but i mean compare. nostalgia isn't what it used to be is it um one thing that we <laughs> We always... I took a sip of beer though, and that was a that was a wrong decision. <laughs> so, yeah. One thing that we often talk about on this podcast is a score, because I don't mm. know if Sean's mentioned it, but he has written a book on scores. So John Carpenter is probably one of the most famous directors for having doing his own scores. There are very few directors that actually do that in the modern era, at least. And this music is done by the absolute maestro that is Ennio Morricone. 
So what was the thinking there? What happened? How did we end up with the score that we got? Well, I mentioned Ennio Morricone in my book that I've written about film scores. I don't know if I brought that up, but uh, oh, uh, you already have. Um, well, Ennio Morricone was brought on board, because, as far as I'm aware, because John Carpenter was a fan. The collaboration didn't exactly work out, probably as was intended, because basically once Ennio Morricone had been hired, he and Carpenter didn't actually have very much communication. As I understand it, Carpenter went back to America. He'd flown out to Italy to enlist Morricone to write the score. Carpenter then went back to America. Morricone, as I understand it, I think stayed in, in Italy and basically wrote a score based on the impressions of, in the script and literally came up with the music. John Carpenter then basically had to just basically edit and sort of cut and shut bits of Morricone's score. But lot, about 50% of the Morricone score didn't make it into the movie. And it's really interesting when you listen to the soundtrack album, you can kind of understand why, because some of it, particularly the organ passages, are a bit too florid and they're a bit too bombastic. They probably would have overtaken the movie. You know, there's one track, the Humanity Part 2, that Electronic Pulse, mm. which is... That's from one track, but that's plastered all over the movie. It's the classic thing of a director. You know, the, the track is created for a specific scene and then the director replicates it because it obviously works so well. But there are actually passages of music that Carpenter did himself, you know, in just ele electronic hums that Morricone didn't do because Carpenter ironically realised that the movie did actually need <laughs> some of his own music in it, despite the fact that he'd hired any Morricone. So it was a bit of a mess. So was it but... Morricone does Carpenter in a way? Yeah, well, that, that particular track was Humanity Part 2. I mean, you listen to the rest of it, it favours... Because Morricone did thrillers, and his thriller scores were actually very challenging to listen to, very astringent. Um, and one of my favourite scenes in this movie, largely because of the score, but also because of the makeup effects and the acting is the bit when they bring back the body from the Norwegian base and they reveal it and you get these prickly, icy, high register strings as the camera tracks along the table and you're just taking in this like mangled, smoking corpse of whatever the hell it is. And the music is just so perfectly tailored to the absolute disgust and the horror that the, that the characters are feeling. You think, you know, what, you know, and then you see that it's got two, two heads, two heads merging together. And you're like, okay, what is this portending for all these guys on this base? And the music works so brilliantly in that particular sequence. But, you know, it's an icy score. That's that's how I would describe it appropriately enough. <laughs> the pun intended, yeah. You know me. You never want to overlook a pun. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, I mean, the score as presented in the movie works really, really well. I think that the circumstances surrounding its creation were messy, to say the least. But it, it is it is very effective. I mean, you know, that electronic beat has now become one of Morricone's most famous tracks. Mm. You know, all elements of the movie. Dean Cundy's cinematography, which brilliantly takes in, you know, the snow-blasted environment. You really do, like you said earlier, you really do get a sense of the isolation and how these men are completely up against it. More so, <laughs> I think, than, than if they were... Bit like, the original is much more, like you said earlier, in, in studios, it's it's artificial in in its environment whereas there's that realism to to carpenter's version that i think is is there the the cast is is very interesting you you ran through the, the names of them a little earlier uh it's interesting that the studio wanted people such as i'm going to list off some names here because you know it's it's fun to think what might have been right christopher mm. walken <laughs> jeff bridges nick nolte sam shepherd 
Brian Dennehy, Chris Christopherson, Ed Harris. I think they were trying to go for stars, weren't they? They were obviously trying to go for some big stars. I mean, Kurt Russell was a big star name at this point, but he's a bit more of a B-movie star name, mm. isn't he, I suppose? Also, Carl Weathers was um, considered for the role of child. <laughs> I mean, I just want to see Christopher Walken. Oh, yeah, you got his daily what? <laughs> that would just be amazing. <laughs> just, well, he's, um, um, he's busying yeah. himself around your neck of the woods lately, but... Um, yeah, yeah, he is actually. Yeah, yeah, he's in, in Hannon. Yeah, that's, that's Bristol, by the way, people. Yes, so, yes absolutely. Yeah. Um, it took. It was a fifteen million dollar budget, and it took nineteen point six million dollars in North America alone. It opened on the same day as ET, and it got absolutely savaged. Probably unsurprisingly, because I mean, ET is a masterpiece. Don't get me. Well, obviously, obviously, ET is a masterpiece. No one needs to qualify that, but that is clearly the extraterrestrial movie that people wanted at that moment i'm not suggesting for one minute that et is lacking in profundity et is an incredibly it's just as profound as the thing but it's just in a very very different way yeah, in a more heart on its sleeve kind of way yeah yeah and this really sank without a trace and i think it's in the recent years that it's really gained that cult following and it's really gained that critical prestige because it, it you know it's well there's no accounting for taste is there um i was going to come on to the both the the actor from the thing from another world kenneth toby and the director christian nyby criticized the film with nyby going so far as to say if you want blood then go to the slaughterhouse all in all it's a terrific commercial for scotch (laughs) so he for one didn't like it but i mean i think the the thing so i you and i have often had the conversation about the greatest year in film history Mm. And I've very openly said 1982 yeah. because I've got the the trio of Blade Runner, The Thing, and E.T. on my side. <laughs> um, yeah, it, is, it was a magnificent year. We should say that The Thing is John Carpenter's own personal favourite from all the movies that he's made. Am I right in saying that you said on our podcast that this is your favourite John Carpenter film? It is. It, it, it's his scariest film. It's his most thought-provoking film. It's his most ambitious. I think it's his most conceptually successful. The climactic thing is a bit lame because I think they they didn't, as I understand it, they didn't have the time or the budget to stage the showdown that they wanted. Although Kurt Russell does get that fu two line, which is which is satisfying. Um, but then it's it, the, the movie is redeemed by that very very chilling ending in which McCready and Childs are saying that let's just sit here and wait a while, and you think oh okay is one of them the thing? And I love how scary and open ended that is. That it's moments like that that solidify this is my favourite John Carpenter film of all time. I mean I don't necessarily disagree with you, which is. Um, I think. Hang on a minute. There's a lot of double negatives in there. Can you just <laughs> rearrange that, just to make it sound more affirmative and make it sound like you're actually on my side? So I don't disagree with you. Okay. Doesn't mean I agree. Um, with can you? you um, I was going to say, can you just change it to I agree? You're not going to do no, that. No, I think no, it's, no. it's hard to overlook Halloween if we're talking John Carpenter masterpieces. I have a lot of affection for the the '79 Elvis film because Kurt Russell's performance as the eponymous Elvis Presley is magnificent, which is something that he clearly enjoyed to the extent that he did an impression of it whilst he was playing Father Christmas in the Christmas Chronicles. Um, I mean, I love They Live, I love Big Trouble in Little China, so it's. It, I think it's harder for me to, to point to one John Carpenter film, but I think if I was gun to my head, if I had to do it, it would probably be Halloween. 
I really like Starman. I think Starman is a lovely film. Oscar-nominated performance from Jeff Bridges. Probably the most heartwarming, probably the only heartwarming movie that John Carpenter ever made. That's really lovely. Jeff Bridges, Karen Allen, she's a humanoid alien who takes the form of her dead, hus- dead husband. She falls in love with him. That's that's a great film. So we had a thing really, for humanoid really... aliens at this point. Yeah, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. Humanoid yeah, alien trilogy with John Carpenter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So we're going to move swiftly on to the 1986 version of The Fly. So this is a much easier plot for me to to, to try and describe, isn't it? It's ordinarily yeah. I'm trying like twisting my tongue and trying to get into the the right places. However, basically Jeff Goldblum builds teleporting devices and he gets into one of them and manages to merge his own DNA with that of a fly because he didn't realize the fly was in there. And what happens shortly afterwards is he undergoes a transformation into what he calls the Brundle fly because his name was Seth Brundle. And it's kind of a, a, a mixture of both human and fly. And we only really get to see that at the, the tail end of the film. So that's the, the premise of the film, but the film is actually really about Seth and the relationship that he's having with Gina Davis's character called Ronnie. And it, it start the film starts off where you see him trying to sort of it's unclear as to whether he's trying to woo her or try and actually talk to her about his impressive new thing. Cause he's, he's socially awkward. He's Jeff Goldblum, right? He's, um, he's doing the whole <laughs> Jeff Goldblum thing. He's in a, uh, what happened if uh, Dr. Grand uh, jumped out of a moving vehicle and it's just, yeah, he's, he's literally doing that. <laughs> yeah. He's doing the Jeff Goldblum thing. And he, you know, he, so he then takes her back to his, um, his lab and he says, it's a lot cleaner on the inside because he's clearly in a really bad neighborhood. And what happens is kind of this love triangle between Seth, the, the Jeff Goldblum character, uh, Ronnie, the Gina Davis character, and Stathis Borens, who's played by John Getz. And what you, you have the love triangle kind of between the three of them. And initially when the, the, when Jeff Goldblum, Seth goes through, he feels empowered because he doesn't understand all where this raw energy is coming from. It's we know it's coming from a fly because you know, it's in the name of the film. We saw the fly in the machine as well. And so he has this energy. He's then, for some reason, able to do gymnastics because, hey, flies are good at gymnastics. <laughs> he then goes into um, a bar and manages to pick up a woman being, like, ridiculously sexist. Like, he's horrible when he goes to that bar and he, he arm wrestles for a woman. And the woman Because flies are sexist as well, apparently. apparently flies so. are horribly sexist. <laughs> and yeah. um, the woman just sort of sits there. Like, the, he says, I'll arm wrestle, but we're doing it for a hundred dollars and for her. And she's like, I'm not surprised to be one. And then lo and behold, turns out she is like, she, yeah. they give the character some kind of agency to say, Oh, actually, no, I'm, I'm not your prize. And then they go, Oh yeah, you know what? Yeah. Fine. And then they take it away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also we find out as the, the plot goes on that, um, Ronnie is actually pregnant with Jeff Goldblum's potential child or most likely his child. And that that's the bit that makes me really queasy. Well, that, that part of the movie makes me really queasy. Like, I can imagine, but do you know who plays the gynecologist? It's David Cronenberg. It David yes, Cronenberg. I do. Know. Yes, David Cronenberg plays the gynecologist in the dream sequence. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah, that that is is upsetting. But that that's the point of this film. This point the, the point of this film is a body horror film. So when you contrast it with the original, the nineteen fifty eight version of The Fly, which was directed by Kurt Newman, it starred Vince Price and Patricia Owens. And what you have in that film, you start off with a murder. And the character that we know as Jeff Goldblum in the, the later film, 
is actually murdered and we then sort of go back through to to flashback as to why that happened and it's because he ended up going in the machine with a fly we never actually really see uh, anything to do with the fly except for he wears a, a a towel over his head and we kind of see a claw except then in the final sequence you see everything which again is a man running around with a fly head so you can put different things down to different um <laughs> To, to different times, but one thing I did notice an awful lot, and it may just be me attributing something to it, but I noticed where it could have potentially influenced Psycho. So there were elements of it where it was the idea that this man has got these two things living in his head, and the way he's trying to normalize himself to his wife in, in the original version. But what I sort of kept coming back to was that scene at the end of Psycho, where there's a fly on Norman Bates's hand, and he says, "See, yeah. I'm not. I'm not even going to hurt a fly. How can they think I'm crazy?" Like yeah. so, it, it just it was something that was was in the back of my mind. It was very it was very strange as well because it was set in Montreal in Canada, so there were elements of Americanisms in there. There were elements of French in there. There was clearly elements of Canadian in there, but there was also very very English. It was a very strange mix and hybrid, which kind of makes sense for a film that is spliced together as The Fly. I mean, out of all this, did you actually like the film? Which one? The, the 1986 one. Right. Yes, I did. What I found really appealing about it was not just the transformation that, that Seth goes through, that, that Jeff Goldblum's character goes through, because the makeup effect on that, it just kind of goes without saying. He's also a perfect actor for it because he has this kind of, otherworldliness to him even though like yeah. he's not playing an alien he's kind of different to to everyone else in the film and the way that he he sort of converses with people it seems like he's got something a little bit strange about him and that might just be jeff goldblum doing goldblumisms uh <laughs> but it also might be just to do with the to do with the, the character so you never know we, we will never truly know one thing i was I'm very sort of remiss to figure out afterwards uh, upon doing some research was that this film was produced by Mel Brooks. Yeah. Yeah. I did not know that. So as I'm currently reading Mel Brooks autobiography, the, the elephant man was produced by Mel Brooks and he, and he took his name off it because he didn't, he didn't want people to think it was a comedy. So yeah, that one I knew the elephant man I knew, but I didn't know the fly until, uh, until I came back to this. So yeah, I think that the, the special effects are absolutely phenomenal. And I think that the the performance of Jeff Goldblum is is utterly astounding. Uh, the story in itself is pretty basic, but it doesn't kind of really need to be. One problem that I had with it, though, I'm not going to sort of universally praise it. One problem that I had was that it's called The Fly, right? So you know what's going to happen. Right from the outset, you know what's going to So there's, there's a good 20, 30 minutes at the beginning... <laughs> Where you, it's almost like they're, they're trying to build up the suspense that is he going to get in the machine? Will he get in the machine? He he puts a baboon in the machine and turns itself inside out in a particularly... Well, you think that's not going to happen because it's not a fly, is it? Well, it, <laughs> that's particularly <laughs> disgusting, but... It, yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. It's very, very yeah. well done. And But they try and build up this tension for, is this thing going to happen? It's like, well, yeah, it's called the fly. <laughs> I'd love it. I'd love it if they pulled like a blinder and he came out and he was like fused with a bear or something. Like I'd have a bit of respect for that actually. I'd, I'd have quite enjoyed that. <laughs> Subversive, um, but yeah, I see what you point about Jeff Goldblum. He's like, oh, I'm a, 
and uh, working on uh, something uh, you know as 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 I as I'm uh, doing this impression you got to do uh, the, the Jeff Goldblum with the hands and you got because Jeff Goldblum does the spider hand <laughs> like that you know, that's what Jeff Goldblum does it's the laugh <laughs> it's the, the, the strange yeah. laugh that's peppered in I absolutely adore <laughs> Jeff Goldblum <laughs> it's like I'm uh, I'm a scientist and I'm working on uh, on uh, something and it's just like it's, it's like okay something world changing clearly it's like, um, uh, well, you know, and uh, yeah. Well, I found so I, I was reading quite. I wasn't going to put this onto the podcast because I didn't think it was interesting enough. But um, I found a quote where Jeff Goldblum said that he was interested in doing a sequel, and I will read verbatim what he said. I don't think my character would be involved because, of course, I got tragically mutilated with the fly and then the machine. Oh boy! But maybe I show up as the grandchild of the original Seth Brundle, or Seth Brundle had a brother, <laughs> had a brother that emerges in some ways. Who knows? I don't know, but David Cronenberg was a thrill to work with. Boy, if he was involved, I'd work with him again. I'll tell you that. You can't not yeah. read that in his voice. Like yeah. <laughs> I was reading that, uh, all I could hear in my like, head. Uh, if uh, David Cronenberg was involved, uh, I would happily work with him again. And it's like you can just hear it. Kind of, it's it's like the like... opposite of Christopher. Well, it's it's very similar to Christopher Walken in the sense yeah, yeah. that yeah. he puts his own punctuation in. He doesn't care where punctuation is supposed yeah. to go. He removes, <laughs> removes all the punctuation and puts it in unexpected places. <laughs> yeah. So, have Jeff Goldblum and Chris Walken ever been in a film together? Like, um, the universe would just that implode. Would, that would be amazing. Just, yeah, just incredible. I mean, literally, you wouldn't get beyond the first scene because they wouldn't be able to finish the sentences properly. Like, you know, literally, it would just be them trying to speak one sentence together. I mean, at the, I mean, we've been facetious here, but yeah, Jeff Goldblum is magnificent in this film. It's a tragedy. You know, it's a, this film is a horror film, but it is a tragedy. It's about a romance. A, a, a very sensitive romance thwarted by tragedy and thwarted by hubris and as with all great horror films if you're emotionally invested in the plight of the characters i said this earlier about the thing then you will care about what's going on in the movie and the idea that that seth makes just a you know a series of hubristic mistakes and then pays the price for it with his body you know first with his body then with his mind as he's consumed by the fly that's taking him over then gina davis is gina davis is brilliant in this she is witness to this hideous physical and mental breakdown of this man that she once loved and she's completely helpless to do anything about it and then and then as you said there's that terrifying suggestion where she might have become impregnated with the you know the human fly hybrid which is just genuinely petrifying i mean i've got you know the idea of like sort of giant bugs flies sort of parading around the world creeps me out and i'm not a huge fan of creepy crawlies i mean i think the guillermo del toro movie mimic i actually think is very underrated and very scary i mean the idea of of giant cockroaches taking over the new york sewer system and being able to disguise themselves in shadows in humanoid shapes that freaks me the hell out and whereas joe's apartment you were fine with yeah, I mean they weren't they weren't human sized in that, and they had really annoying voices. Like in in Mimic, they're vicious. It's 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 actually genuinely frightening. In answer to your earlier question, Jeff Goldblum and Christopher Walken have starred in three films together. They were both in Annie Hall. Oh yeah. Jeff played a party guest, and Christopher Walken played Dwayne Hall. Uh, they were both in the 1977 version of The Sentinel. Uh, and they were both in the Robin Williams comedy Man of the Year. Okay, fair enough. So they they um, have they have met. Um, all the punctuation <laughs> must have gone out the window. <laughs> I mean, you know, jokes aside, 
Jeff Goldblum is tremendous in this and he makes it work. He's the engine that makes this work. I mean, there is clearly that brilliant David Cronenberg incisiveness. I mean, he's known as the Baron of Blood, you know, the king of venereal disease, the idea of body breakdowns Mm. and how your body can become your own worst enemy, which is among the most terrifying and thought provoking concepts. It's because we are flesh and blood organisms and then our cells are weight and decay exactly yeah and david cronenberg always taps into that mm. brilliant or he particularly did in the eight in the 80s and, and the early part of the 90s but it's more about the fleshiness i mean chris wallace's makeup effects as you said are brilliant and they won an oscar for this deservedly so mm. um i mean it's the psychological breakdown it's the suggestion that you are losing your human faculties to a much more primitive animalistic or insect-like, I should say, sensibility, because there's that classic quote where he says, I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it, but now the dream is over and the insect is awake. And that is so chilling because so much of his body has fallen apart by that point and he realises that the last thing to go is his mind. Mm. It's his human mind. And that's like the last bastion and he knows he's going to lose it. And he knows that the, the, the genetic makeup of the fly is more aggressive than his own human makeup. And it's, t- it's taking over and, you know, in amidst all the disgusting effects like him, like vomiting over the donuts and not like, melting them. That was deeply upsetting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's horrible. Um, but in amidst all of that, it works psychologically. I think one thing I will say about both of these movies, the 1982 The Thing and the 1986 The Fly, is they're not gratuitous. I know The Thing was accused of being that back in the 80s. Yeah, no, um, they're not. They, they, they're not gratuitous at all. They use violence and horrific special effects in order to tell their story, in order to facilitate yeah. their stories. And... I think that's true of Cronenberg from a lot of his films as well. It's it's easy to look yeah. at a Cronenberg film and just sort of say it's over the top and what have you. But I mean he was he was ultimately trying to say something about aging and death and disease and all that sort of stuff. Like it was attributed uh, similar to to the thing. There's a lot of similarities between these two films in that it was um it was attributed to being about the AIDS crisis as well. And even Cronenberg himself said that he, it wasn't necessarily designed to be a cultural metaphor for for AIDS. However, it works because he was talking about disease, something that will eat you from the inside and transform you. And you know, there's yeah. there's so many different types of of illnesses that can ultimately do what what you've already mentioned in that it decays the body and then the mind is the final thing to go. I think that what it manages to do is bring all of these aspects together and have it in a a relatively sort of pulpy horror movie, a body horror movie. So that's when, when to me, horror and science fiction are at their best when they're not telling the stories that you think they're telling. So like, mm. I always cite Arrival as being one of my favourite science fiction films from the last, God knows how long, 20 years probably. And what it manages to do is it's, it's not telling a story about a woman trying to talk to the aliens. It's telling a story about the universe. It's telling a story about time. It's telling a story about language. About language. It's about language. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, the way that it it's non-linearity about it is is it's astounding and that's what i think when when you get horror films when you get science fiction films that's when i think they're at their best is that they're they're not telling the stories that you think they are now you ordinarily like to drop a name or two on this podcast and oh i know what's coming next right we're gonna now talk about the score from howard Mm. shaw is that someone you've ever spoken to yeah yeah 
um, or close to a year ago, actually, I interviewed him about his score for a very, very interesting film by Deepa Mesa called um, Funny Boy. But yeah, he was he's brilliant. I mean, Howard Shaw is an astonishing artist. Started out in Saturday Night Live, funnily enough, which a lot of people tend to forget that. Obviously, his relationship with David Cronenberg is one of the longest standing and most creatively fruitful director-composer partnerships in the history of cinema. It's gone since the late 70s. Is it 17 they've done? Yes, I think so. Yeah, it's it's knocking on that. Um, the Fly might mark their work at, at its peak, although I really like what they did together on Dead Ringers a couple of years after this, which got a beautifully melancholic, creepy score to it. But The Fly, it's it's an opera. And in, funnily enough, the score was adapted into, into an opera um, just recently, I think, in the last 10 to 15 years. Howard Shaw did adapt it into an opera. And the fact that it translated so easily into that medium says a lot about the inherent principles of the score, which is that it is operatic. It's an operatic love story. Yes, there is horror. Yeah, there is broiling torment in the music. But it's underscored by an air of very human tragedy. And it's an idea of how a film score, like you said, a film score can communicate what you're not necessarily seeing or what you're not necessarily seeing straight away. You know, even when you're being presented by the hideous spectacle of Seth being transformed into Brundlefly, the music is very often operating on a different register. The music isn't merely toiling in like the lower registers just to be horrifying. The music is actually very sad. So you've got a very, very interesting mixture of Chris Wallace's makeup effects Jeff Goldblum's performance, David Cronenberg's direction and music that's actually telling you to think more deeply, to invest more deeply in what's going on, as opposed to superficially just reinforcing the disgust and the terror of the situation. That happens all the way through the movie and it's masterful. I completely agree. It manages to to raise it above just, like I said, it's the thing that makes you think deeper about it. And we should say Howard Shaw is probably best known for the the Lord of the Rings scores, um, as well as working with Scorsese, I think, six times as well. So he's uh, he's, he's an extremely uh, well-known and well-respected composer. So The Fly, I think, on the whole, I, I did enjoy it. And, you know, I was this week I knew I was going to watch the the thing because, you know, hey... I've seen the thing before plenty of times. I I know what to expect. Whereas with The Fly, I, I really... I, I knew what to expect in so much as the narrative and the, the fact that this man's going to build two pods and get into it with a fly and that's going to kind of fuse everything. But what I wasn't expecting was the stages from which Seth turned into Brundlefly. And it was very, very thriller-ish. It was very, very reminiscent of the, the makeup used in the, the Michael Jackson video. And at certain stages, and and then it sort of went past that and, and went into the the fly. And I think that that's what really helps set this this film apart is just not so much just the Jeff Goldblum performance, which we've already touched on as being magnificent, but the way that the effects enhance that, and the way that they they bring forth this this element of grossness as well as the the sort of otherworldliness that Jeff Goldblum can bring to to many many different things. So we mentioned it won an Academy Award for Best Makeup. It's the only Oscar won by a film that's been directed by David Cronenberg to date. That's pretty staggering. I mean, I mean that that that's amazing. It, yeah, um, it's, it's astounding. But you know, I mean, let, let me put it this way: Gwyneth Paltrow has as many Oscars as David Cronenberg. That's just wrong. <laughs> In every sense of the word. Yeah, but you can't get a candle that smells like David Cronenberg. No, wait, I'm not going to go there. 
<laughs> I know, don't don't do that. <laughs> so I mean it's this there were sequels to The Fly, one that was directed by Chris Wallace, who was in charge of the makeup effects for the first film, and there was then a, a comic book mini series that was written in 2015. You've already mentioned the um, the opera that was out in 2008. Um, there, there were talks about getting a, a sequel with David Cronenberg, and that's where the, the quote came from that, that I read about Jeff Goldblum earlier on. Mm. And, you know, I think that it, I'm kind of glad it was left pretty much as it was because it, it works on the level that it is. And I think that what Jeff Goldblum brings to it is is just astounding on the whole i think that it is a success and and you know i'm not hugely surprised to say it because there's a reason this film has endured for 30 odd years so it was quite a success when it was uh was released uh it was budgeted around 15 million it took about 60 million and we've already mentioned the academy awards as well so i think that what we've got this week are we've absolutely hit the theme on the head because like i said i watched the the 58 version of the fly for this and it was very stagey, and it it didn't add too much to to the story, except the fact that the final scene was that you actually saw the man. So that what they'd done is they'd swapped the heads. So you had the the, the fly, the, the human then had the fly head, and the the fly had the human head. And the final sort of part of the film is you see the fly with the human head, and he's saying, "Help me, help me, help me!" And he's as he's about to be eaten by a spider, and. I mean, it's very, it's good, but it, it's no, it's no Cronenberg. Mm. Yeah. So I think that what we've hit the theme absolutely on the head, as happens in the final bit of the fly. Next week we're going to be looking at rather controversially, I think, we're celebrating the BBC films because the BBC have produced some absolutely astounding films over the years, and we're going to be uh, exploring and delving into and celebrating two of them. And please take a look at our social medias where you'll be able to find what those films will be as they're announced a bit later on in the week. But next week, we will be celebrating BBC film. I mean, in, in no way related to current climate. No, no. We, so this anything, is the thing. We, we try and take sort of a, a step back on certain things. But then there's other things that I think are that we think are important enough to tackle mm. almost head on. And when we work in the fields that we do, and this is something that I, I already sort yeah. of thought was going to come up. We work in the fields that we do. I specifically, in my, my day job, benefit from the fact that the BBC exists. So mm. I think it's it's an important thing to, to have a look and I mean, celebrate as and when we can. There's a whole other tangent that will come out in this episode because I, I, there was a particularly ugly bit of news that came out in relation to various things that have gone on in, in this country, in the UK over the last, that something's happened as a result of a certain political decision that was made within the last six years. And I can't say I was very happy about it. No one in the arts industry is very happy about it. But anyway, we'll, we'll address that in the context of what we're going to talk about next week. <laughs> and there will so, be, so this is your warning now, there will be political things flying around and political aspects yeah. flying around, um, which is not yeah. something that we do that often. Um, we try right. and sort of keep ourselves out of it and just analyse the film. But um, I, I think, to be fair, a lot of us in the UK are quite angry mm. at the moment. I think a lot of us are quite fed up, and I think venting that anger is only healthy. Well, um, to be honest, yeah, I think we've been we've had a, a couple of episodes now where we've eased ourselves back into the new year. Um, so would you would you a little bit of a, a ranty one, even if the films that we choose are not going to be the ones to cause that? Mm. 
We always say we're a proud part of the We Made This podcast network. You can find out a lot more about the network and some of the shows that are on there. Uh, there's actually shows dedicated to things like Red Dwarf, which got a, a shout out a little bit earlier on in yes, this episode yes, too. <laughs> um, you can find out a little bit more on the Twitter, the Facebook, the Instagram, the website. Um, you can be like us and be proud patrons of the We Made This network as well. You can also find us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Letterboxd, on Facebook, on email. Uh, we're pretty much everywhere is Frame to Frame Pod, so you'll be able to, to find us there and get in touch if you've got any ideas for themes or anything that you want us to cover in future episodes. However, until next week's potentially... I mean, it's not even going to be combative because you and I mostly agree. <laughs> but until next week's politically <laughs> charged episode of uh, celebrating BBC films, I'm Andy Williams. And I'm Sean Wilson. And please continue on listening to hear some of the other great shows on the We Made This podcast network. Bye-bye. Elsewhere on We Made This. The Giddy Carousel of Pop. I became really obsessed with music. It's sort of 1982. Fell in love with Simon Le Bon. There was a rumour in Australia, and I don't know if it existed anywhere else, and I've never been able to find verification of it on the internet, that he was the son of Brian Ferry. That was the rumour in Australia. Yes, seriously, and everyone believed it. Everyone believed it. I remember the first time I saw Planet Earth and my sister saying, oh, well, he's Brian Ferry's son, and I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's, that's good. Hardest crew. It's got a real strong magic there, you know, the, the, the supernatural mystery, the you know, supernatural Christmas ghost story kind of really comes together, and I think it, that's what works for me. And it's also probably the first classic of McGann as the Doctor, because before this you had the TV movie, which isn't fondly liked, if we're being honest, and then all the stories with him in Big Finish that preceded this, none are marked down as you must listen to this but arguably the chimes of midnight is the first story where you see mcgann and go yes he is 100 percent the doctor pick a disc and then the martians which you do yeah and then the martians <laughs> construct a machine which is like a spider-like vehicle to try and capture and collect humans and to harvest them um, yeah, when they're, they're seen injecting the blood of the humans into their veins. Yes. Which is pretty badass. How old were you when you were listening to this? I think I was probably three or four when I was first listening to this. This explains a lot. Because <laughs> 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 it's quite because it's like kind of gruesome body horror, but without the visuals when you think about it, isn't it? So it's, uh... Yeah, so you're using your imagination, so it's even better. So Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network. Yeah.